You got your Bibles? Exodus chapter 22. And uh, let's pray. Father, we just thank you for this morning. Thank you for your word, Lord. I thank you that we could just take some time and wrestle through these things. God, we just uh, bring you our hearts, Lord, and we pray that our hearts would be like a a freshly plowed field, Lord, soft and fertile and ready to receive the seed of your word. And so, God, give us open hearts this morning. Give us open ears and open minds to that which you want to say, Lord. We pray that your Holy Spirit would just uh, anoint the teaching of the word and that... uh, that we would know you more, Lord, and, and know Jesus Christ more as we go through this text. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, I also just mentioned, uh, we were at a ministry conference this week. There was eight of us uh, from CTK up at uh, Camp Stillwood, up, at, up past Cultus Lake, and we just had an awesome time. Um, maybe about 20 churches represented there, and uh, great time seeking the Lord and spending time with each other and hanging out and Waiting in the presence of God. Great worship, great teaching, just, yeah, good time. So it's good to be back, though, this week, and we'll get rocking here. Okay, Exodus chapter 22. Well, as we, we dive in here, actually, we're going to take on chapters 22 and 23. And I introduced us to this section of Exodus last week when we were in chapter 21. These are kind of three chapters, Exodus 21, 22, and 23, that establish some of the legal system in this newly formed nation of Israel as Moses is leading them and as God has met them on Mount Sinai. And these are the laws by which the judges will rule over the people. One of the things that I pointed out last week, and I want to remind us again, I'm going to remind us of a few things as we step back into this a section of, of Scripture. <coughs> And one of the things I want to remind us of is this, is that in, in God's economy, in the, in the functioning of his kingdom, the way that God sees justice meted out is not through incarceration, but through a bringing about restitution when wrong has been done. And so we're going to see that. You, you watch for that word restitution through this text as we go through there. You know, as... Uh, as Christians, we, we count on the very nature of God for the same concept, for restitution. We, we depend on uh, the work of the cross uh, for our sin to be paid for and for our relationship with God to be restored. It's through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross that we are brought into restitution, into right relationship with our Heavenly Father. And by faith in His name, we have life. And so... As I pointed out last week, you know, one of the things that I might suggest about Exodus 21 through 23 is that if you're coming through it, uh, reading along in your quiet time, these chapters can start to get a little bit heavy on your brain and on your eyes and maybe uh, hard to focus and it's easy to put yourself in neutral as you read these chapters and, and just not pay attention to what the Holy Spirit is speaking. And so... I gave us two important things, and I'm going to repeat them as we go into this text this morning. I gave them last week. The same things apply. The first one is this, that a man's attitude to other people, to his fellow man, will always be based on his attitude uh, in regards to God's law, God's word. And the second thing was this. There's nothing small that touches our character. 
You know, the things that are enumerated in this passage might seem small. They might seem insignificant, too small to mention on a Sunday morning. But nothing is small that touches our character. And so, you know, I gave you this illustration last week. And I thought, oh yeah, I've got to give the answer to uh, what, I, what I had said last week. And it's this, you know, that in terms of defining excitement, I kind of likened uh, reading these chapters to watching uh, House of Commons debate on television. I mean, what, I, and you know, it's, it's good that we pause and mention what happened in Ottawa this week. Wasn't that tragic? Um, yeah, it's just, just tragic, but awesome to watch an, a, a nation come together in support of uh, a fallen soldier killed on, on home soil. You know, uh, I was looking actually this morning at our picture. We, ha- we got our, our group tour picture of Parliament uh, 10 days before that event happened and we were standing in that hallway with Prime Minister Harper uh, in that very spot where we saw on the news all those uh, policemen running through there f- firing their weapons. That was the very spot where we were standing to have that picture and, and uh, boy it just made the reality of that pretty harsh as I thought of our, our tour of Parliament a couple weeks back. I told you when we were touring Parliament, I asked a very pertinent question. What's with the green carpet? (laughs) Remember that? We talked about that last week. Actually, we were standing in the Senate when I asked that question because in the Senate, the carpet's red and in the House of Commons, the carpet's green. And so I said, what's the symbolism here? I mean, I think I could get the symbolism of the red carpet, but what's the symbolism behind the green carpet? And so just to leave you hanging, not to leave you hanging like I said I was going to do last week. Um, the tour guide told us that, of course, originally the Senate was called the House of Lords. It's a picture of royalty, and so the carpet is red, representing royalty. And the green carpet, although they don't totally know, they believe this, that it's because of um, back in the day, way back in the day when there was only a House of Lords, and the people did not have representation amongst the government, they would meet out in green fields, out in public places to talk about things of government. And so green is the color of the commoner. Green is the color of, of the people and represents the commoner. Okay, so that, that answers something that I left you hanging with last week, all right? Democracy. Thank God we live in a democracy But the government that God established for Israel was different. It was not a democracy. It was a theocracy. The government of the Israelites was a system of government in which judges or priests ruled in the name of God. In a theocracy, public authorities are the servants of the divine sovereign. And so these that we're reading are the the instructions, the laws, the rules which the divine sovereign has laid down for his judges to rule over the people. And so let's, let's check it out. We'll pick it up where we left off last week. We're in, we're in chapter 22 and it says this. If a man steals an ox or a sheep and kills it or sells it, he shall repay five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. Boy, this is exciting stuff as you get into this, eh? You know, so here I am. I steal your ox or I take your lamb from your herd uh, whether it's to eat it or to sell it, if I steal an ox, I've got to repay five to one, 500%. Restitution. If it's a lamb, a sheep, it's, it's 200%, or sorry, or it's four to one. Restitution. Now, 
If a person was poor and they go and they steal an ox or a sheep, you know, I guess what I would wonder is how in the first place, if he had to steal one, would he repay with four or five? And that was the whole idea. The answer is this. The whole family was responsible in Hebrew culture. And so, you know, the result was is that there was this internal pressure built into Hebrew families to obey the law because if one person broke the law, then the whole family was on the hook to make sure that restitution was, uh, had happened. Verse 2 says, If a thief is found breaking in and struck so that he dies, there shall be no blood guilt for him. But if the sun has risen on him, there shall be blood guilt for him. He shall surely pay. If he has nothing, then he shall be sold for his theft. If a stolen beast is found alive in his possession, whether it is an ox or a donkey or a sheep, he shall pay double. And so here the Lord instructs a property owner has the right uh, to protect his property with force. I guess the question is, what is reasonable force? Well, the Lord says, reasonable force is based on, uh, you know, whether things are in daylight or under the cover of darkness. Obviously, if it was daylight, then, you know, the owner could likely defend himself without using lethal force. But if it was under the cover of darkness, you know, someone's breaking into your home, it's, it's confusing to know whether uh, they're there to perform a theft or a murder, you could defend yourself um, from that person and not be guilty of his blood. I guess, you know, if you were to turn this into a spiritual principle, it's this. The principle is this. With increased light comes increased responsibility. You're responsible for that which you know. Verse 5 says, If a man causes a field or a vineyard to be grazed over or lets his beast loose, and it feeds in another man's field, he shall make restitution from the best in his own field and in his own vineyard. So the owner of an animal was responsible for the grazing of his animal and respecting his neighbor's property. Probably as a nation's getting established, there's not fences. There's not well-determined boundaries to, to hem animals in. And if I ignore my animal and, and I let it go into your field, then I'm responsible to... Uh, bring about restitution, I must pay with the best of my own field. Verse 6 says, if fire breaks out and catches in the thorns so that the stack grain or the standing grain or the field is consumed, he who started the fire shall make full restitution. This is good practical stuff for our culture, I think, you know. Vandalism, foolish negligence, you make restitution. You pay for the damage you did. And so we see as we go through this, and we're going to continue to see this, there's a, there's a great emphasis on the Lord on personal responsibility, even with the property of others. You know, we were playing a, a hockey game with Jonah's team yesterday afternoon, and one of our kids gets run over in our end, and I watch him. He gets up, and I think, good on him, no retaliation. And then he skates the full length of the ice, and he lines a kid up on the other end, and whammo! <laughs> And off he goes, double minor, in the penalty box, four minutes. And so he comes to the bench, and I start to give him a talk to, and well, this excuse, and that excuse, and this excuse. And you know, it's human nature to avoid personal responsibility. Are you kidding me? You skated the full length of the ice and lined a guy up. What did you think was going to happen? 
Or if I go through a drive-thru at McDonald's, you know, holding a cup of their burning hot coffee, driving, texting, and I spill that hot coffee all over myself. I mean, seriously, is McDonald's responsible? It's not their fault I'm an idiot, right? No, that's called personal responsibility. And the nature of sinners is to defend themselves even when they are clearly in the wrong. And the Lord in a lot of these laws that he is laying out says, no, no, no. The person responsible is responsible. He must make restitution. He says in verse 7, if a man gives to his neighbor money or goods to keep safe and it is stolen from the man's house, then... If the thief is found, he shall pay double. If the thief is not found, the owner of the house shall come near to God to show whether or not he, is, he has put in his, sorry, to show whether or not he has put his hand to his neighbor's property. So if someone gives you something to hold for them, you're responsible to be a faithful steward or a manager for them. The Lord said that, right? Jesus said that. They give you talents. You're responsible for those. In this law, if something does disappear and no thief is found, then you would come before the leaders of the community so that with God's help, they could determine whether or not you were the actual thief. Verse 9. For every breach of trust, whether it is for an ox or for a donkey or for a sheep or for a cloak or for any kind of lost thing of which one says, this is it, the case of both parties shall come before God. The one whom God condemns shall pay double to his neighbor. If a man gives to his neighbor a donkey or an ox or a sheep or any beast to keep safe and it dies or is injured or is driven away without anyone seeing it, an oath by the Lord shall be between them both to see whether or not he has put his hand to his neighbor's property. The owner shall accept the oath and he shall not make restitution. You know, life gets difficult when neighbors can't trust one another, doesn't it? It's good to be able to trust your neighbors to know that you can function with one another. And, and the Lord says here, the principle is this. You know, when a man gives his testimony, it, it's, it's to be taken as true unless otherwise, you know, proven. He's innocent until he's proven guilty. There it is right there. The owner shall accept the oath and he shall not make restitution. But, verse 12, if it is stolen from him, he shall make restitution to its owner. It, if, it, if it is torn by beasts, let him bring it as evidence. He shall not make restitution for what has been torn. You know, the New Testament actually makes it clear, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, that believers, Christians, those who follow Jesus Christ, should actually avoid taking legal disputes into the public place. That they should not take them to secular judges, but that they should, you know, allow the church to judge the matter. Now, of course, you know, uh, there are times when it needs to go to uh, secular judges and there's laws that need to be followed and, and obeyed. But, you know, it's good to let the church judge in matters like this. Verse 14, it says, If a man borrows anything of his neighbor and it is injured or dies, the owner... Not being with it, he shall make full restitution. If the owner was with it, he shall not make restitution. If it, was, if it was hired, it came for its hiring fee. So principles of restitution even applied when you were borrowing and lending 
Borrowing and lending items to neighbors. I was thinking to myself, oh yeah, sick. I better give Greg, my neighbor, back his air tool oil and his brad nails from when I borrowed his gun. You know? We're responsible. When we, when we borrow things, you're responsible for that item. And the Lord says, look, you know, the guilty party has to make good. And so, you know, as we come through this section, I can't help but notice how many times I see the word neighbor and restitution. Jesus, of course, said the second greatest commandment is what? Love your neighbor as yourself. I mean, we see why that law sums up all of these laws so well, don't we? We entrust our souls to God. You know, think about it this way. What if God handled our souls the way that we treat our neighbors? See, the Lord promised that, that he would keep that which was committed to him. And so when we entrust, when we are entrusted with something, we should make every effort to fulfill that trust. <coughs> To fulfill that trust uh, with the thing that we have been given. Now check out this, this one. Verse 16. If a man seduces a virgin who is not betrothed and lies with her, he shall give the bride price for her and make her his wife. If her father utterly refuses to give her to him, he shall pay money equal to the bride price for virgins. In God's economy, the point at which a man seduces a virgin is basically the point at which he says, I do. Married. That's what the Lord is saying here. Once there is sexual involvement, this is marriage. And, you know, in practice, these verses, I would say, essentially uh, prohibit premarital sex because it requires that a man provide for a woman with whom he has sex. There's nothing casual about sex, right? We know that. Throughout the Bible, the Old Testament and the New Testament teach us that sexual relationships carry with them lasting consequences. The commentator Clark said this. He said something really awesome. He said, this was an exceedingly wise and humane law and must have operated powerfully against seduction and fornication because the person who might feel inclined to take the advantage of a young woman knew that he must marry her and give her a dowry. You know, this law, I guess, was, is really only effective, I think about our culture, it's really only effective when virginity is something that is to be prized in a culture. When it's virginity is something that's prized amongst women. And here, you know, a, woman, a woman's virginity was her guarantee that she was not to be treated cheaply. And therefore her father and her family valued her virginity and, and, and placed emphasis on that. You know, far too many people, uh, women included, I don't want to just chat with the guys here. I might even say, especially women, sell themselves too cheaply, give it away too easily. You know, a man told this story and I thought that's a great illustration he spoke of a friend who owned an antique store and had a table for sale and the table was worth $600. But it was marked down for $300. And so a man came into the store and he spoke to the woman in the store and he says, I'll give you $200 for the table. He said, no, the table's for sale for $300. And he, and he, he, 
he, he tried and, and, and worked at it. And as, and as she considered this, she realized, you know, this table's worth more than 300 and it's definitely not worth the 200 that it's offering. It's worth $600. And that man left the store paying $600 for the table because it's worth it. It, it was worth fighting for. The value was there. And you know, you know, many women, you know, let men treat them shabbily, you know, let them treat them like whatever. They contribute to the problem sometimes by selling themselves cheaply. Ladies, if I, you know what? Don't give it away for free. Lord says it's not free. You know, I'm reminded of that old saying, you know, if you want the milk, you got to buy the cow. And even in this case, you know, if the man was willing to marry the woman, the father could still step in and he'd say, no, and you still owe the dowry. You pay up. And so the thing about it, you know, about this as well, I guess, is, yeah, that the father of that girl was invested in the purity of his, of his daughter, even financially invested in that. And there was a, a cultural value placed upon purity. Next in these next verses we read about capital crimes. It says this in verse 18. You shall not permit a sorceress to live. Witchcraft. There's, there's darkness in that as we know. It, it's to be treated with deadly seriousness the Lord says. You know in the ancient world I always, I always make this connection and I think that it's very important that we make this connection within our culture because we say well you know you look in, in the ancient culture, in ancient world, sorcery was always associated with medicinal arts, drug use. And I would say, you know, there is a very strong connection between drug use and the occult. You know, this week someone came into the church office and he was five days clean. He wanted to chat five days clean from absolute chronic uh, marijuana use. Uh, a chronic and he talked about the effects of that upon his life. Then he shared with me about some of his other drug abuse issues. And he, he talked about his drug experiences and he described them as going to hell. It's like going to hell. And he, he talked about the spiritual realities that he experienced as he was under the influence. We need to connect the dots. The Lord says, you shall not permit a sorceress to live. Verse 19, whoever lies with an animal shall be put to death. Bestiality condemned. You know, but the reality is this, is if, if we reject God's word in other areas of sexuality, then, then God's word is not the moral guide for such things, and there's no place that we draw the line. And so God had to clearly define these things because the Israelites were coming out of cultures where these things were happening. Verse 20, he says, whoever sacrifices to any God other than the Lord alone shall be devoted to destruction. You shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. See, we know the Israelites were quick to forget the realities of Egypt. They were quick to forget what it was like to live as a foreigner amongst other people. And God gave them this law as a remembrance. You don't forget what Egypt was like. Do not oppress the sojourner. 
You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry and my wrath will burn and I will kill you with the sword and your wives shall become widows and your children fatherless. I mean, God looks out for the weakest and the most vulnerable members of a society and therefore he commands his people to give special care to the weakest and most vulnerable people. Have concern for them. The Lord has promised to protect them. He says in verse 25, if you lend money to any of my people who is with you, who is poor, you shall not be like a money lender to him. You shall not exact interest from him. If ever you take your neighbor's cloak in a pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down. For that is his only covering, and it is a cloak for his body. And what else shall he sleep? And if he cries to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. You know, interest was prohibited on loans made to the poor. You know, when you took uh, collateral from an individual in regards to something, it had to be reasonable. And God promised that he, that he hears the prayer of the poor man that cries out to him. Now that's not a condemnation of lending money, money at, at interest. It's just saying you can't do that for the poor. You know, I think about our culture. We, we, we take advantage of the poor, don't we? You know, we get our payday loans and this and that. We take advantage and, we, and our culture charges usury. The Lord said that's not right. You lend and you don't charge. Verse 28, you shall not revile God nor curse a ruler of your people. See, the Lord, he cares about how we talk about him and he cares about how we talk about those in whom he has placed in authority over us, those in whom we are to live in submission to. And you know, tongue, the, the, the tongue, the mouth, is a good temperature gauge on the holiness of the heart. He says, do not, you shall not revile God nor curse the ruler of your people. You shall not delay to offer from the fullness of your harvest and from the outlo- outflow of your presses. The firstborn of your sons you shall give to me. So the Lord says, don't delay in paying the tithe. Respect God, honor the Lord, and give him his due. Verse 30. You should do the same with your oxen and with your sheep. Seven days it shall be with its mother. On the eighth day you shall give it to me. You shall be consecrated to me. Therefore you shall not eat any of the flesh that is torn by beasts in the field. You shall throw it to the dogs. Uh, And so a mark of consecration and being set apart unto the Lord for the people of Israel we know is this. uh, Their diet. That there was holiness and the things that they ate. You know, in the New Testament, we take that and we apply it to the mind. We say, what do we feed our minds on? You don't eat the food of dogs. Those who don't honor the Lord. But we honor the Lord in our thinking. Let's jump into chapter 23. He says, you shall not spread a false report. You shall not join hands with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. You shall not fall in with the many to do evil, nor shall you bear witness in a lawsuit siding with the many so as to pervert justice, nor shall you be partial to a poor man in his lawsuit. 
And so the Lord's saying, you know, stop, stop a false report. You know, don't speak up. When something false is being said, speak up and be the voice that speaks the truth. When testifying it, don't pervert justice by just siding with the crowd. Stand up for what's truthful. Uh, don't pervert justice even by giving partiality to the poor, the Lord says. Which to me is really interesting. He's, they don't, it's about justice. Do what is just. He says in verse 4, If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying down under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving him with it. You shall rescue it with him. What a powerful law that must have been, eh? I mean, if you think about that, you know, you don't, you don't just drive by when the neighbor you hate is pulled over on the side of the road with a flat tire and it's raining and the wind's blowing and you see him struggling and you snicker to yourself. No, the Lord says, pull over and help him. You know, these were laws that, that promoted kindness even with a man and his enemy. You know, should a man come across his enemy and, and he's in such a, such, such a situation and, and you obey the word of the Lord and you help that enemy out, I, I just think, you know, that doing that act together would bring the two of you together and you wouldn't be enemies for long, would you? Jesus said this. He said, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. You know what happens when you pray for your enemy? You'll be set free from the bitterness that you have towards them. You'll be set free from the hostility that you have towards that person. And, and, and God can work in that situation. Uh, he can work in you. Verse 6 says, You shall not pervert the justice, the justice due to the poor in his lawsuit. So, we're also not to pervert justice by giving partiality to the rich against the poor. Verse 7. Keep far from a false charge and do not kill the innocent and righteous for I will not acquit the wicked and you shall take no bribe for a bribe blinds the clear-sighted and subverts the cause of those who are in the right. You shall not oppress a sojourner. You know the heart of a sojourner for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. Verse 10. For six years you shall sow your land and gather in its yield. But the seventh year you shall let it rest and lie fallow that the poor of your people may eat. And what they leave, leave the beasts of the field may eat. You shall do likewise with your vineyard and with your olive orchard. Six days you shall do your work, but on the seventh day you shall rest, that your ox and your donkey may have rest, and the son of your servant woman and the alien may be refreshed. You know, sometimes we develop this attitude in, in the church in regards to the Old Testament, in regards to the laws of God, and we, we get this wrong attitude that we're like, man, God's law is all about placing demands on us. And too often we fail to see the tender heart of God and his commands. Look at that. God's concerned for your ox, your donkey, your servant, the alien. The Lord wants you to be refreshed. You know, God doesn't, you know, he wants us to succeed, but not at the expense of others and not at the expense of our own lives, our own health. He says, be refreshed. And interesting, he doesn't just leave that principle to the, 
the, the week, he extends it to the years. He says, you know, work your field for six years and let it rest on the seventh. Let the birds have at it. Let those who don't have food come and, come and take from it. It's, it's just awesome to see the tender heart of God that his people and his land be refreshed. Verse 13. Pay attention to all that I have said to you. Make no mention of the names of other gods, nor let it be heard on your lips. The apostle Paul said it this way. Be ignorant concerning evil. I got another conversation this week and someone was just sharing me with some of the evil that they saw and I just thought, you know what? I don't, I want to know. I'd just rather be ignorant. Don't tell me those things. I'd rather be ignorant. And I, and, and I said that to him and look, be ignorant concerning evil things. Make no mention of the names of other gods. In verse 14 we read, three times in a year you shall keep a feast to me. You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread as I commanded you. You shall eat unleavened unleavened bread for seven days at the appointed time in the month of Abib. For in it you came out of Egypt. None shall appear before me empty handed. You shall keep the feast of the harvest of the first fruits of your labor of what you sow in the field. You shall keep the feast of the ingathering at the end of the year when you shall gather in from the field the fruit of the labor. Three times in the year shall all your males appear before the Lord your God. So the Lord says three times I want all the males, the people to appear before me and they become the major feast. This is all we really see of these in the book of Exodus. Uh, later on, you hear more, a lot more about these in the, in the book of Leviticus. But it was this, in the springtime, there was to be the feast of the Passover. A time when they were to remove from their homes leaven, which was symbolic of sin, right? And we know that, it, remember the Exodus story, when they painted uh, blood over the doorposts of their home, and the angel of death passed over, it was to be a feast, an annual feast, where they commemorated that work of the Lord. Fifty days later, they were to gather for the feast of Pentecost. And then in the fall, they were to gather for the feast that's called the feast of the ingathering or the feast of tabernacles. Okay? And the Lord says, when you gather, no one's to come before me empty-handed. Rather, come ready to give. And you know, with that said, you know, there are those today who, uh, who came looking not to get something, but looking to give something when they came to the body of Christ and to gather and worship with God's people. You know, ready to pray, ready to worship, excited to bring their tithe to the Lord, looking forward to meeting someone new, uh, looking forward to reaching out to people, looking forward to serving the kids, ready to serve God's people. And when people come and gather with that attitude of heart, I'll tell you this, they never, ever, ever leave church disappointed. Because the Lord ministers to his people when they come ready to give. And they enrich the body of Christ. Verse 18. You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with anything leavened. Or let the fat of my feast remain until morning. So again, leaven was symbolic of sin. Blood is symbolic of atonement. Blood is shed for sin. So the Lord says you can't mix those two offerings. You cannot have sin and the source of atonement together. No blood and leaven mixed. Verse 19. The best of your first fruits of your ground you shall bring into the house of the Lord. 
You know, I would say this, that the priority of our lives is seen in what we do with our first fruits. The, the first fruit speaks of the first tenth that comes to us that, that we're called to give to the Lord. Verse 19 continues, it says, you shall not boil a young goat in its mother's mouth. Sounds kind of weird. Sounds kind of weird, right? But it's actually a command not to imitate the culture around them. Uh, there was a, a practice in all the cultures around them uh, a, a, a pagan fertility uh, ritual where they would do these things. You know, it's actually from this law that kosher laws developed. Think about this. I remember when we, the first time we went to Israel and Travis Hawkins was with us. He went into McDonald's and he tried to order a cheeseburger. That don't work in Israel because you don't get dairy and meat together. There's no cheese on the burgers, okay? And uh, it was from this law that that developed, but this one, that was actually never the point as you read that. This isn't the point here. It's to avoid the pagan rituals of other cultures, but some have also said this, that this command was given um, also, you know, so that the people of God would have an appreciation for the natural order that God has designed. You know, to make a mother an accomplice in the death of her own offspring is sick. It isn't right. And so the Lord says, don't, don't do that. You don't take a mama's baby and take its life and then use her milk to cook it. Here's my favorite part of these two chapters. Coming through all these laws. You guys are awesome. This is the Jesus part. It's the good part. Verse 20. He says, behold. Behold. That means slow down here. Uh, observe and think about what I'm about to say to you. The Lord says, behold. I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you into the place that I have prepared. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him for he will not pardon your transgression for my name is in him. Unquestionably, this is a reference to Jesus. Uh, it's called a Christophany in the Old Testament. An Old Testament appearing of Jesus Christ. We've seen many of these in the book of Exodus. It's Jesus Christ in the Old Testament before he came to earth, uh, veiled in human flesh, born as a baby in Bethlehem. The reason why we know this is Jesus Christ is because this angel is given, many Bibles he's capitalized, the word angel, is given the power to pardon transgression, to forgive sin. And the Lord said, my name is in him. The Lord's name is Yahweh. Yahweh is in Jesus. The name of Jesus is Yeshua. Literally, the Lord is salvation. The name of God is in him. And as the angel of the Lord, Jesus would go before the host of Israel and lead them to the place that God had prepared for them. Doesn't that sound familiar to the work of Jesus Christ? As he said in John 14, in my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. And you know 
the way to where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. An awesome picture, Jesus leading the people of God in the midst of the desert to the promised land. And the people were told, pay careful attention to him. Obey the voice of my angel. The same thing that we are called to, to do with Jesus. Verse 22 says, but if you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say, remember Jesus said, I only speak what my father tells me to speak. And here we see the father speaking through the angel. But if you obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. When my angel goes before you and brings you to the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, and I blot them out. So the heart of God is that we obey the voice of his servant, his messenger, his angel, Jesus Christ. That he might bless us. Uh, that we might have victory over the things that weigh us down and hold us in bondage over our enemies. Now we know one of the differences between Old Testament, Old Covenant, and New Testament, New Covenant is this, that in the, in the, the days of Moses under the Old Covenant, blessing, the blessing of God was almost based purely upon the performance of the people in regards to obedience. But under the, the new covenant, under, under grace, we operate under a different principle. Uh, of course, there's inevitable consequences with sin. Sin has inherent consequences right in it, but God brings correction to disobedience, and our blessing in Jesus Christ is not based on our obedience, but it's based on Jesus' obedience to the Father that he accomplished and all that he did for us on the cross. And so God is, we see as we're coming through here, God has not brought his people out of Egypt to leave them in the desert, but to lead them to a place that he has prepared for them. And Jesus has led us out of bondage to, to sin and death to lead us to a place that he is preparing for us. And the promise is, he will take us to that prepared place. He will come again. Verse 24. You shall not bow down to their gods, nor serve them, nor do as they do, but you shall utterly overthrow them and break their pillars in pieces. Uh, again, idolatry, strictly forbidden. Verse 25. You shall serve the Lord your God, and he will bless your bread and your water and I will take your sickness away from among you. None of you shall miscarry or be barren in your land. I will fulfill the number of your days. What an awesome promise that is. Uh, for health. Uh, for blessing on our food and on our water. On the womb. On long life. When, when God's people serve the Lord. When they obey him. Verse 27, I will send my terror before you and will throw into confusion all the people against whom you shall come and I will make all of your enemies turn their backs to you. You know, I would ask you this. What are the enemies that wage war against your soul? 
the evil forces that are waging war against the work of God in your life. The Lord promises, as you follow him, he will throw the enemy into confusion and he will lead you into victory for his name's sake. And so, you know, in your, in your battles, in, and we all have battles, we all have wars waging against our, our soul. Take hope in the Lord. Know that he is going to bring victory. That he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. Look at verse 28. The Lord says, this is crazy, but he says, I will send hornets before you which shall drive out the Hivites, the Canaanites, and the Hittites from before you. This is interesting. Verse 29. I will not drive them out from before you in one year, lest the land become desolate and wild beasts multiply against you. Little by little I will drive them out from before you until you have increased and possessed the land. Hornets, man. I mean, God has, he has his ways for taking care of our enemies. But he does say this, I'm not going to drive out your enemies as quickly as, as you might like because there's other things in play. Do you, ever, do you ever feel like that spiritually? You think, man, Lord, I wish you'd just drive this out of my life. Can't we just have victory here? Can't this war be done with this enemy? But the Lord says this, if I drive it out in one year, beasts will multiply against you. So in, until you have increased until you're ready to occupy the land, I'm, g- I'm going to keep them there so that the fields will be in good shape, to keep the wild animals away so that as you progress, you come into areas of land that's ready to cultivate and to, and to work and, and to live in. This can be kind of frustrating in our lives, right? When we're battling against sin. It's often how God's work. He, he clears things out little by little so that we grow. I just wish you'd do it all at once. That just seems so much better to me. But God cares that we grow, and so he does it little by little. Little by little, I'll drive out the obstacles. And for us, as followers of Jesus Christ, the issue is then, then we just stay close to Jesus. Stay close to Jesus, and little by little, he'll drive it out, and he'll bring victory, and we'll grow. Verse 31, read to the end of the chapter. And I will set your border from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines and from the wilderness to the Euphrates. And I will, give the inhabit- I will give the inhabitants of the land into your hand and you shall drive them out before you. You shall make no covenant with them and their gods and they shall not dwell in your land lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. Look, this Lord says, the Lord says, I got, I got big plans for you people. I, I, I didn't bring you out of Egypt without a plan and a purpose and, and a design for your life. And the same is true for you and I. We haven't, we haven't been brought out of a life of slavery to sin and death just to exist in mediocrity before the Lord. The Lord has plans. He has divine purposes He has things that he wants to accomplish. For the people of Israel, it it was to inhabit a land. But he warns them, when you get there, don't become involved with the gods that you find there. But keep your eyes on me. 
And you know, that's a good, and a, a good thing for us too to hear. We've been brought out of slavery to sin. And as we're living for Jesus and he's bringing victory, increased victory, and he's driving out inhabitants, driving out the enemy, and, and, and bringing spiritual victories in our lives, the danger is that in the place where we live, we become involved with the gods that the people around us serve. Don't become involved with the gods that you find in this world. Stick closely to Jesus. Keep your eyes on him. Let's pray this morning. I'm going to invite the worship team to come on up here.